It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. On July 26, 1945, a mere 20 days before the end of World War II, the greatest figure of World War II, Winston Churchill, was voted out of office by the British people. Hey, this is Eric. Many times in our lives, we have pulled a similar stunt. People bless us, they serve us, they sacrifice for us, and then bloop, our life turns for the better, and the fog of difficulty lifts from off our life, and a strange thing can happen. We forget those people that washed our feet in our darkest hour. We move on to new things and often fail to pay tribute to those that helped us get out of the pit. Remember, out of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed, only one came back to say thanks. Let's just make sure we're the one in 10. If you would like to access the other episodes in this series on World War II, visit ellersley.com forward slash daily. There are certain people in my life that have greatly impacted me, and sometimes as time passes, uh, there's a debris that covers over certain people in your, in your past, and you forget of the impact. You forget the impact that they've had on your life. Now, I've had an entire year focusing on Winston Churchill. I've been going through his memoirs as the chronological outline for this series. And so I've spent a lot of time meditating upon him, but it's also caused me to remember a lot of other people. It's interesting because my dad's name is Winston, and he was, you know, he was born in 1941, and it was right in the height of uh, World War II and right in the critical moment when everything was going dark. And so my dad is born, and uh, my, my grandpa obviously was impacted by Winston Churchill. It's named uh, his son, Winston. And so my middle name is Winston. I don't know if I've mentioned that throughout this series. But I'm named after my dad, but in a strange way, I feel a connection uh, with this man. And as I've gone through this study, it's just interesting to recognize when my dad was born and the, the background, there's so many overlaps with my life in World War II. And, you know, my, my granddad and the Japanese internment camps up in uh, his neck of the woods in Idaho, it's just very strange. I remember grow, driving by those and just seeing that my mom was born right in that time, and that was right in their backyard, basically. And the connections that I've had with this series are, are very unique. And so I'm going to go through this, and you notice I, I have the word attribute to Churchill, In a sense, I'm going to pay a tribute to Churchill, but as a spiritual lesson in this, that it's important for us to pay tribute. It's important for us to give honor where honor is due. And that's sort of the spiritual lesson in this, is that I want to remember who has gone before us. And in our American heritage, we so quickly lose sight of what has been done to gain the ground and the strength that we have today, which is why it seems that we so quickly will let it go. But when you cherish your heritage and you begin to pay tribute to it and honor to it, it actually makes you stronger in the now. And so that's where you see me wrestling through this very concept personally, and I'd like to bring us all through this corporately. So in June of 1945, we are in our chronological flow. We've gotten to late July, and we had the Potsdam Declaration in July, on July 26, 1945. And so now I'm back to June. I mean, what's I'm just I'm sort of filling in some blanks here on the personal side for Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, I, and I've said this throughout this series, but 
There's a lot of things unsaid in his memoirs that I just happen to know because of my rest of the study of World War II. And this man is standing alone in the hardest situation any man maybe in history has ever inherited, and that is to lead Great Britain starting May 10th, 1940. There's no one in their right mind that would ever want to say yes to this job. And he is staying alone. Great Britain is the only country standing against Hitler. The Americans are sucking their thumb in the Great Depression. They're, they're weak. They don't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, they're thinking about their own situation, and they actually think Great Britain's going to fall anyways. They don't want to waste any resources on it. So it's almost like America is forsaking Europe. And so it's a critical moment for this man to step in, and the nation is debilitated. The nation is divided. The nation is bankrupt after World War I. The nation is disarmed. They've lost all their military strength to try and be politically correct with all of Europe. They have nothing at the very moment that they need everything back. And Winston Churchill is inheriting this situation. And he has walked through this alone for a great deal of the war. And then because of Hitler's mistake, and I'm going to call it a mistake, to invade Soviet Russia, what was he thinking? Soviet Russia is actually going to join the side of Great Britain. Well, that was, that was a nice feature, even though you're sort of wondering, do I really want to be on the side of Soviet Russia? Well, if it means destroying Hitler, all right. And then America is going to be bombed by Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941, and that is going to bring America in. And Winston Churchill, by the way, is rejoicing. I mean, who would rejoice over the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Winston Churchill, because it's going to bring America into the war. So now you have three powers. The big three is what they're oftentimes referred to as. And throughout the flow of the war, you're going to see Stalin's Soviet Russia and, Amer and Roosevelt's America become stronger and stronger and stronger, where, where eventually they have more participants in the war than Great Britain. And so you'll see at the negotiating tables when the big three get together, they start to dismiss Winston Churchill. And I don't, I mean, Winston Churchill never mentions it. I feel it throughout the war. And I, you know, I, I, I've, I've said I'm, I'm a motley mix of who I am. I'm an American, right? So you think I would just be standing with Roosevelt no matter what. And my name is German as far as we can tell. Eric Ludi. There's a famous uh, German uh, general named Eric Ludendorff that uh, I'm not too happy about being associated with. He was a big sponsor of Hitler, by the way. So, uh, but my, my mom's maiden name is Obendorf. So you mix Ludi and Obendorf together and you get Ludendorff and you get a really bad guy. It's like being named Adolf Hit or something. <laughs> so so I, my name has this German-esque sort of sound to it, and then I, my middle name you know, is Winston. So I have the British you know, empathy there. But it's actually really hard for me as I've studied World War II to see Churchill's voice get diminished. It's going to happen. I have multiple messages where I bring that out of the British stance and position on this almost gets overlooked. And you see Soviet Russia and America almost joining forces to say, yeah, Churchill's a little kooky. And I feel it. For whatever reason, I feel like Churchill in all these stories. So I've gone through this whole year feeling like I've been diminished when Churchill's being diminished. So it's been a, a personal uh, journey for me. But here we are in 1945 in June. We've already had what's called VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So uh, Hitler has actually committed suicide at the end of April, and the Germans have capitulated. They've surrendered. Yay! And, but all is not over. In fact, 
even though there's celebration throughout Great Britain, confetti flying, Churchill has a heavy heart. And he cannot seem to get himself to rejoice because he sees something that no one else sees. He sees that Stalin's Soviet Russia is now beginning to claim territory and begin to defy some of the compacts and covenants that they've had as a big three. And so the whole war started with Poland uh, being invaded, and now Stalin has Poland in his clutches, and Churchill's like, we need to know, they need to have a free election there. Stalin, remember originally you said you weren't interested in taking territory and you would not take Poland? And yet Roosevelt is sort of trying to play mediator. He doesn't want to upset uh, Stalin. And right at this key point, Roosevelt dies. And so you have Roosevelt dying, and Truman knows nothing about the foreign policy. Nothing. He, know, he, know, he doesn't even know there's an atomic bomb being built. He doesn't even know that. Okay, So we have a guy with no knowledge suddenly stepping into a very politically charged situation, and Stalin and Churchill do not get along. And so Truman, how's he going to be the mediator? He doesn't know either of them. And so you have this crisis, and, and Churchill feels it. Churchill is feeling what we know as the Cold War, and that's exactly what is commencing. You are going to see the unfolding of this battle between communism and the Western world, and communism is going to take its claim of World War II, which is Eastern Europe. And so many of us grew up around that, but we don't realize it's starting here because of non-action. Now, here's what's hard for, for, for Churchill, if you could just imagine this. He has been the bad guy for years in Great Britain because he's saying, you need, to deal with you need to deal with Hitler. You need to deal with Hitler. Hitler's not telling you the truth. You need to deal with Hitler. And everyone is upset with Churchill because no one wants to go to war. No one wants to deal with Hitler. They just want to put their head in the sand and let him be. And yet, Churchill will not stop talking about it. Guys, if you don't deal with it now, it's going to get worse. Well, guess who's right? Churchill was right the whole while. He saw the evil, and Great Britain did not want to hear about it. They, anyone who spoke of war or fighting or Hitler was called a hate monger and a warmonger. Isn't that interesting to see the political correctness back in the 30s? It's so similar. And so what you see is now Churchill is in a very difficult situation. Everyone is once again rejoicing. They are so happy to have their peace. Hitler is dealt with. I mean, that would be quite a moment because uh, that's the whole point of World War II. Stop Hitler. And Churchill is thinking what everyone needs to hear is we actually need to now go against Stalin. Could you imagine how favorable that would be? How, how popular do you think that notion is going to be right now? But if it's, that's our troops are right there, guys. We are fully armed. We are ready for battle. We are engaged. Let's stop this now. Well, that's not a very pleasant thought to anyone. And I, if we were in the situation, I have a hunch we could understand Great Britain's thoughts of like, no way. And so Churchill's in a difficult situation. He sees the evil, which we're all going to inherit for decades after because of the same exact non-action. So this is June 1945. I'll just give you sort of a back uh, room peek into uh, Churchill's world. While all this was passing, I was plunged into the turmoil of the general election. So there has to be an election because one of the parties in Great Britain is like, you know, we need to start focusing. After VE Day, we need to start focusing on jobs here in Great Britain. It's all about Great Britain now. We need to change from being foreign policy driven and dealing with world issues to dealing with home issues, which I get. You know, if you study 
Great Britain's economy in this time, it is destitute. They've been borrowing just to make it through World War II, and they've had a wartime economy, which if they're not going to continue in that, they have to transition. So I get it, but Churchill is not in a place where he can start focusing on that yet. He needs to deal with world affairs. You have Stalin, and you have Japan still at large in the Pacific. And so in the middle of this, Great Britain basically calls for a new election to see who should actually lead us into this next season. Now, again, I, I take Churchill's position very quickly in this, and I'm like, guys, this is a bad time for this. So while all this was passing, I was plunged into the turmoil of the general election, which began in earnest in the first week of June. This month was therefore hard to live through. He sees something, and he knows that the troops are going to be withdrawn in early July. So the American troops, Truman has already uh, gotten everything moving forward. All the troops have been notified. They're going to begin withdrawing from Germany in July, early July. And then you have the British troops and the, the French troops and the Canadian troops. Everyone's going to be pulling out. And so Churchill wants to meet earlier with Truman. He says, we have to deal with this. We have to discuss what's going on with Stalin. And Truman, his advisors are saying, mm kooky. Uh, you know, he's, you can almost say he's not going to be around much longer. Okay. Don't build your plan around this guy. So Truman is going to say he can't meet earlier. I mean, this is one of the world leaders is asking, saying, we're desperate right now. We need to meet. And Truman is going to decline and they're going to meet after the troops are withdrawn. And so again, I'm feeling it from the, the Churchill side of things. So this is continuing with Winston Churchill's uh, memoir. Strenuous motor tours to the greatest cities of England and Scotland with three or four speeches a day to enormous and it seemed enthusiastic crowds and above all four laboriously prepared broadcasts consumed my time and strength. All the while I felt that much we had fought for in our long struggle in Europe was slipping away and that the hopes of an early and lasting peace were receding. So July 25th, 1945, we're in Potsdam, Germany at the Potsdam Convention uh, or con Conference. This is the big three have all come together and they are going to be dealing with how to take the next steps in the war. On July 17th, if any of you remember my past few messages, the atomic bomb is born. And so you're, you're going to have the notice come to uh, Churchill and Truman and they're going to find out that actually, the, as it says, the baby is born. In the New Mexican desert, uh, they have... Uh, discovered that this atomic bomb actually works. And it's quite shocking, I think, to everyone that witnessed it. They were behind big slabs of concrete 10 miles away uh, testing this thing. Total devastation within a one to five mile radius. And I mean, it's just like, wow, this thing is powerful. And so that changes everything in the war. Instead of likely going to lose 1.5 million soldiers trying to take to silence Japan. That's what they were figuring. 1.5 million allied soldiers to finally close off this war. Suddenly they have a different solution. So this is J J July 17th. The Potsdam Conference is going to end August 2nd. July 25th is the night of the election. And so sort of our November 3rd. And so that he's in Germany as this is all happening. Winston Churchill continues, excellent arrangements had been made by Captain P 
him and the staff of the map room to present a continuous tale of election results as they came in next day. The latest view of the conservative central office was that we should retain a substantial majority. I had not burdened myself unduly with the subject while occupied with the grave business of the conference. On the whole, I accepted the view of the party managers and went to bed in the belief that the British people would wish me to continue my work. My hope was that it would be possible to reconstitute the national coalition government in the proportions of the new House of Commons, thus slumber. However, just before dawn, I woke suddenly with a sharp stab of almost physical pain. A hitherto subconscious conviction that we were beaten broke forth and dominated my mind. All the pressure of great events on and against which I had mentally so long maintained my flying speed would cease and I should fall. The power to shape the future would be denied me. The knowledge and experience I had gathered, the authority and goodwill I had gained in so many countries would vanish. I was discontented at the prospect and turned over at once to sleep again. I did not wake until nine o'clock and when I went into the map room, the first results had begun to come in. They were, as I now expected, unfavorable. By noon, it was clear that the socialists would have a majority. At luncheon, my wife said to me, well, it may well be a blessing in disguise. I replied, at the moment, it seems quite effectively disguised. In ordinary circumstances, this is Winston Churchill continuing, I should have felt free to take a few days to wind up the affairs of the government in the usual manner. Constitutionally, I could have awaited the meeting of Parliament in a few days' time and taken my dismissal from the House of Commons. This would have enabled me to present before resignation the unconditional surrender of Japan to the nation. I mean, this is amazing. He knows that Japan is going to be bent. He knows it. But if he resigns now, then it's the next prime minister that gets the credit for the capitulation of Japan. And yet, listen to his reasoning. This is very fascinating. The need for Britain being immediately represented with proper authority at the conference, where all the great issues we had discussed were now to come to a head, made all delay contrary to the public interest. Moreover, the verdict of the elect electors had been so overwhelmingly expressed that I did not wish to remain even for an hour responsible for their affairs. At seven o'clock, therefore, having asked for an audience, I drove to the palace, tendered my resignation to the king, and advised his majesty to send for Mr. Attlee. So uh, Attlee will be the next prime minister of Great Britain. So July 26, 1945, which is the day that he woke up and received the news, he's going to write this letter to the British people. This is actually how his memoirs finish. It finishes with this letter. So I'll read it to you guys. The decision of the British people has been recorded in the votes counted today. I have therefore laid down the charge which was placed upon me in darker times. I regret that I have not been permitted to finish the work against Japan. For this, however, all plans and preparations have been made, and the results may come much quicker than we have hitherto been entitled to expect. Immense responsibilities abroad and at home fall upon the new government, and we must all hope that they will be successful in bearing them. It only remains for me to express to the British people, for whom I have acted in these perilous years, my profound gratitude for the unflinching and swerving support which they have given me during my task, and for the many expressions of kindness which they have shown towards their servant." So July 26, 1945 was 11 days before the bombing of Hiroshima and 20 days before VJ Day. <laughs> He's voted out of office. I, I just, I, for whatever reason, I feel the pain of that. There's something about the disregard and the, and the, the this people, 
of Great Britain have so appreciated Winston Churchill. There are so many moments where they are going to just be in awe over how he is going to lead them through this difficulty. And yet, once VE Day hits and there's victory in Europe, they immediately lose sight of their leader and their leader's importance, and they think about themselves again. I mean, it just has a tendency to be what happens. When we're in a time of crisis, we are able to see things a little more clearly and be more appreciative uh, of those around us, those that are sacrificing. But when it comes to that crisis passing, we have a tendency to turn inward. And the British people are thinking, we want jobs, we want stability, we don't want war. If you don't want war, you don't want Winston Churchill as the prime minister. This guy is vulnerable to going after people like Stalin. And so if you were feeling that, you can just sort of see the fact that he's a wartime uh, prime minister. He's not fit for us because we do not want to be in a wartime anymore. And as a result, they're going to end up in a wartime, basically in a cold wartime for a long time. But uh, so that's what happened. I want to talk about honor. Honor, now I, this is from the 1828 dictionary. There's multiple other definitions for honor. I just picked the top two out of the list because they match with what I would like to say today. The esteem due or paid to worth or high, estima high estimation. Number two, a testimony of esteem, an exp any expression of respect or of high estimation by words or actions. It's interesting because you can also have honor towards God. And that would be a worship, a, an adoration of who he is, his worthiness. And so when you pay him honor, we pay him honor with thanksgiving, we pay him honor with worship, we pay him honor with praise. And so when we honor humans, it's not worship, it's not the same thing as we do with God, but there is still a human-to-human -human honor. And I like this, a testimony of esteem. Isn't that an interesting definition? Any expression of respect or of high estimation by words or actions. So we will oftentimes use the word attribute. And that's, that's what this is for me. It's a, it's a showing of honor. And I believe, especially in our day and age, honor needs to return. I have never seen in this last four years of presidency of uh, Donald Trump, I've never seen more dishonor towards a public figure in my life. And that's, I mean, well, I'm turning 50 uh, this next month. So that's my testimony. I've never seen such disrespect and dishonor. But it's, it's come into our entire culture. You see, we've already had an erosion of honor where you see young people showing a disregard for their parents and no longer defending their parents, no longer defending their families, but actually turning against their families, even openly, even publicly. And that's something that in earlier times in America was unheard of. This behavior is unheard of. And so to bring this back as the church, to recognize we cannot participate in this. When, when Barack Obama was the president of the United States, I told our students here that yeah, ideologically, politically, he's very different than I am. But he's my president, and if he walked in here, I would command all of us to show deference and honor, to treat him as if, in fact, he is our president. It doesn't mean I agree with what he says, but he is a man that is put in authority over us. So therefore, we will show him honor. 
And I would say the same for Donald Trump. And I would say the same to anyone out there that doesn't like Donald Trump. It really doesn't matter political view, it matters position. As I've oftentimes said, I remember I was in a national interview uh, during the Clinton administration, and it was the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And so it was a live national interview, and I remember I w wasn't expecting them to ask me about the scandal. I just, that wasn't in my brain of how the questions were going to go. So it's like, what, Eric, what do you think about uh, the President of the United States uh, being caught in this uh, extramarital uh, relationship? I don't remember how they, they worded it, but it's like, oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, and my brain is like running a thousand miles an hour trying to figure out how do I answer that from my vantage point. In other words, I want to always honor my president. This, is, this has always been my grid. But I don't want to honor his behavior. So how do I answer that in such a way which doesn't set a bad pattern for my generation? I was very cognizant of that even back then. I want to show honor. But that doesn't mean I honor his behavior. So how do I do this? And I said, well, one of the most important things for me is separating out the behavior of a leader from the leader himself. I will always show honor and respect for the position and not because they're perfect. You see, my honor for my president is not based on his perfection, but his position. His behavior, I do not think is good. However, he's still my president. I remember what the question was, but that was sort of the essence of what came out. And it's true, you know, Bill Clinton and Eric Ludy are very different. It's like oil and water when it comes to ideological viewpoints. And yet, when he's my president, I still want to show deference and honor. And I would say the same to anyone who even has parents that are rather unhealthy and unsavory. You can still show honor to your parents. They're still your parents. And if you were to say, where do you get this from? I would say, well, I get it from the Bible. That's where I get it from. <laughs> this is not Eric coming up with this. <clears throat> Romans 13, 7. Pay all of them their dues, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Isn't that an interesting statement? So pay honor to whom honor is due, pay respect to whom respect is due. Now, like I said, we give honor and deference not because of perfection, but because of position. We are called to honor our parents, not because it says in Scripture, if they are perfect, but because they're our parents. And as a result, it goes well with us in the land. It's a, it's a command that comes with a promise. It's very interesting. Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. So we see this idea of honor of that which is uh, father and mother, that which has given us birth, that which has given us life and sponsored our life, that which is in authority over us. And when we do, it seems to impact our life. It's an interesting statement, but it, when you don't have honor, which we've seen over these last four years, you've seen an evisceration of the idea of honor. And I'm not going to blame the, just the liberals for that. I'm going to blame both sides of the ledger on this in a two-party system where it's gotten nasty. It used to be just mudslinging. We, we've known that. I've seen mudslinging my entire life, and I've been disgusted by it my entire life. This is at a whole nother level. This is a dehumanization. This is 
extreme name calling to the point where everyone is the most evil creature and the most hideous words are being associated with them. And I could give illustration, but I'm not going to. It is a despicable state of being that we are in as a country and how we are treating those in authority. The President of the United States tried to bring a lawsuit, I think it was in the state of Pennsylvania uh, this last week, to a higher court, and the higher court said that, that the plaintiff had no standing to bring this to the court. I think the President said something like, so you're saying that as the President of the United States, I have no standing to bring a lawsuit to the court in Pennsylvania. What has happened to the presidency of the United States? And so just in and of itself right there, you're seeing a degradation of understanding of value. That there is an authority and we have lost respect for it. And we could all have our opinions of how that happened. And one side would blame it on Trump. And I'm not going to make him completely um, innocent in the matter too. At the same time, what you see is something where we have lost a quality and an attribute which would enable us to have to live long in the land <laughs> which the Lord has given us. In other words, we're headed in the wrong direction. And this is one of the key attributes. Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. Whoa. That sounds a little serious there. But I just examine what it's saying. You shall rise before the gray-headed. What would that mean? It's a show of honor and respect. Someone who is older than you, who has gone before you, you show honor and deference to it. You know that in the nation of Ethiopia, if you're under 30 years old, you are not allowed to speak in a group of adults, of, of people over 30. You hold your tongue. Why? because you're not 30. You have not gained enough life experience to speak. Huh. Wow. That would be helpful. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, I like the concept. <laughs> of course, I'm over 30. You could say that. It's like, well, Eric, you're over 30. However, the protection that is fixed into that notion culturally is very fascinating. You know, when America was first being formed, House of Representatives, you could not be in the House of Representatives unless you were at least 25 years old. Why? Because they felt that someone's belief system, their thinking, their emotional center would not be stable enough until the age of 25. To be a senator, 30. Why? Well, because it's going to have greater weight and to carry that much weight, they figure, well, somewhere around the age of 30, you're able to carry that type of weight. President, 35. You see the reasoning. And it has to do with the fact that when you're young, you oftentimes are wise in your own eyes, which is where the term sophomore even comes from. A sophomore is a, is a fool who thinks he is wise, a moron who thinks he is wise. And so you could just see the naming system for schooling. It's like, and you will be a sophomore. And they're like, thank you. And it sounds so cool. Uh, little do they know, they're a moron who thinks he is wise. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of of an old man, and fear your God. I am the Lord. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Isn't that just interesting? The New Testament, Peter talking, it just sort of comes out, makes it sound so simple, 
And yet most of us never even pause to think about that phrase. Honor all people. As we show a deference to all, they're created in the image of God. God gave up his life to redeem them. He has given a sense of value. You cannot diminish the value of any human being when you recognize that Jesus Christ shed his blood to purchase them. That right there shows intrinsic amazing value. So honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. We would do well to listen. So I want to honor Churchill. And this is a very simple thing, but the reason I'm doing it is just sort of warm up the engine. Uh, And I could take from a lot of different episodes where I had different Churchill moments. And I'm only just taking a few thoughts just to do it quickly. But uh, this is a quote that uh, a student who is over in Scotland visiting sent back to me after they had uh, read this. I don't know if it was on a plaque. I don't remember where it was, but it was from the uh, Earl of Rosebery at the uh, celebration for William Wallace. I think it was the the 400-year celebration or something like that at Stirling Castle. And this man spoke, and what he said is so pithy and powerful that it's worth repeating multiple times uh, to come up with excuses to repeat it. But I can't help but think of Churchill when I read this. There are junctures in the affairs of men when what is wanted is a man. Not treasures, not fleets, not legions, but a man. The man of the moment, the man of the occasion, the man of destiny, whose spirit attracts and unites and inspires, whose capacity is congenial to the crisis, whose powers are equal to the convulsion, the child and the outcome of the storm. So Great Britain was hanging in the balance, and so Churchill is inheriting this government, and over in France, uh, Philip Patan had said that uh, England will last three weeks before it, its neck is wrung like a chicken. Okay, so that's the uh, impression of France right across the channel. And for all practical purposes, when you look at it on paper, yeah, I could see where they're coming from. The ambassador uh, to Great Britain from the United States came back to tell Franklin Roosevelt, yeah, they're done for in, you know, whether it's a couple weeks, less than a month. In other words, they can't hold their ground. They do not have the ability to do it. Okay, so this is what Churchill is inheriting. Great Britain was deemed by Mussolini a frightened, flabby old woman. So <laughs> that's how weak they were, okay? That, and you have to, if, if you were to read through the history of the 30s in Great Britain, you'd understand why Mussolini thinks that, okay? Mussolini was an ally or I'm sorry, Italy was an ally of Great Britain, Mussolini's the Italian dictator, uh, during World War I. Mussolini is going to lick his chops and recognize that once in 500 years you get the opportunity to take down Great Britain. And he sees his opportunity. So he sides with Hitler. Okay, not a good idea, by the way. If any of you are thinking uh, which side you should go on, don't go with Hitler. And so this is Mussolini's uh, wonderful statement, a frightened, flabby old woman I love this statement from Winston Churchill. The German ambassador comes in and sort of gives the hint that, you know, it'd be good for you to do whatever we ask. You know, we're we're controlling everything. We have the power, you have none. And then Churchill, with nothing to back him up, other than a flabby old woman behind him, he says, don't underestimate England, sir. Oh, that's good. 
That's good. See, this is like the darkest moment, and this man always hoped and had faith, which is why he's such an incredible man to me. It's not because of his rotund figure. It's not because he smoked cigars and drank brandy. That isn't what I want to mimic in my life and train my kids to follow. However, there is something about his indomitable spirit and his ability to laugh at impossible odds that is deeply intriguing to me. And I think that we as the church uh, would do well to grab a hold of some of this good stuff. Five things Churchill did that inspired the world. One, he didn't have fear in the crisis. This man did not buckle under. I mean, everyone else is buckling under. There, I mean, it's, it was very, very dark, and I'm not going to go into it right now, but it was very, very dark. And as uh, Germany is beginning to invade Great Britain, it's called the Battle of Britain. The, the island of Great Britain hadn't been invaded for a thousand years on a land attack. And so this, the Battle of Britain is actually an air attack. The Luftwaffe was the, uh, the Nazi Air Force. And they're bombing, and there's like no defense against it. So just bombs falling uh, and all over. And London is the biggest city on earth at the time, and it's just being, just being devastated and destroyed. He didn't have any fear. So he, he wanted to go out and get his nightcap, I think is what he called it. And uh, it was down at a local pub. Uh, and so he's making his way down the street uh, with, his, with Inspector Thompson. And Inspector Thompson is r- responsible for keeping him healthy and whole. He's like the Secret Service guy, right? He's a really cool guy. And, uh, but Churchill is not listening. Churchill would go up to the top of buildings and stand up there to watch the Luftwaffe uh, fly over and, sir, sir, you must get down. And, and he just did not fear. He's such a fascinating character. So he's walking uh, to get his nightcap, and this is the conversation. Churchill to Inspector Thompson. So this is actually, in, I think it was in Thompson's diary that this is written down. Uh, <clears throat> Churchill to Inspector Thompson. Uh, after he says, sir, sir, you need to get in. I have someone else other than you looking out for me, is what he says to Thompson. And Inspector Thompson says, you mean Sergeant Davis, sir? And Churchill says, no. Then he pointed his finger upward toward heaven. I have a mission to perform, and that person intends to see that it is performed. This man knew that he was placed where he was by God for such a time as this. Now, whether it's a good idea to walk out in the open when bombs are are, are falling to go get your nightcap, you know, that's a different discussion, but it is fascinating to see his utter confidence. Number two, he wouldn't flee for his life. You see, Typically, what you do when your city is being bombed, where do you think they're aiming for? They're aiming for Churchill and the king and queen. That's actually who they're after. Churchill will not leave London. I will not be intimidated by the Nazis. I will not leave this city. And so the king and queen decided to stay too, which so inspired the citizens of London and the rest of Great Britain to realize that their leaders would not run for their life. But the, the pace was set by Churchill. Churchill starts that, and the king and queen are like, yeah, yeah, and he inspired the nation. Number three, he would walk amongst the rubble every day and be with the people. There's a certain form that the British people have, especially their rulers, and it's very impressive, but there's a distance between commoners and the royalty, the elite, 
And that's part of how they show honor. They show deference. You guys remember uh, the Obamas went over to visit uh, the queen and Michelle Obama stuck her hand on the queen's shoulder and the entire nation was so offended. You do not put your hand upon the queen's shoulder. Now what's interesting, and you know, I, I don't defend the Obamas a lot, right? But in that situation, I stood up for Michelle Obama. I didn't do it public, I just did it here at Ellerslie. And I said, look, in America, that's a statement of affection. And so actually, if they were to recognize that, that what Michelle Obama was doing is she was showing deference by putting her hand on her shoulder. So again, it's how you interpret things, but in the British culture, there's a separation. Churchill is going to violate that. They're in the midst of travesty, bombs falling. Every night there would be rubble all over the city, people dying. He would go out every day to be among the people. One of my favorite stories is him leaning down and, and getting, resting this, this one woman from the rubble and getting you know, all the dirt and the grime and the blood on himself. And this woman is so struck by the fact that her prime minister is the one getting her out of the rubble that she can't even speak. And then when they walk off, he would just sob. And that's what the records say. I, was, I think it was Thompson even describing it. He would just sob over what was happening to his city and what was happening to these people. And all I can say is, as a model of leadership, I want that. That's what I want right there. So you give me all sorts of leadership models to look at, and I'm going to say, okay, what this guy has, I'm impressed with, which is why you see me say, do you guys know my middle name is Winston? I mean, I, I want to be associated with it. I want to brag about it a little. Number four, he would speak words of hope and victory constantly. This man, you listen to his speeches, I mean, you just have to laugh, especially if you know the backdrop of them. There is no hope. The men are over in Dunkirk. 70 to 80% of the entire military force of Great Britain is surrounded and going to die. They're backed up to the British, uh, the, to the British Channel. Now, why does that sound funny, the British Channel? That's, what, is, that, is that correct? Why does that sound funny? English Channel. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, something's off. They're backed up to the English Channel with no hope of survival. And he gives this rip-roaring speech about how they're going to come out of this. I mean, what? It's just ridiculous. But it inspired the nation. He had hope always. He, it doesn't, doesn't matter how bad it got, he gave a positive spin on it. And number five, he did not waffle, bend, or compromise. He would not negotiate with the bad guys. This guy was a man of principle, dogged in his determination to stand for what was right, and he stood for the Jews when no one else was standing for the Jews. The Jews still to this day consider him one of their greatest advocates. Just an amazing man for such a time. Winston S. Churchill, the grandson, said, I'm convinced that but for Winston Churchill, the Nazi swastika to this day would be flying over every capital city as far east as Moscow. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, who was in London during all of this, watched up close how Churchill led, said, Winston Churchill lifted an entire nation out of the depths of humiliation and defeat, instilled in them the spiritual strength to stand against heavy odds, if not for Churchill, England would have gone down. So this idea of honoring. Now, I just honored a man. He's not around to hear it. And, but it's still an exercise for my soul, which is important. In other words, you could say, well, if he didn't hear it, what good is it? 
It's actually good for me as well. You see, there's something that's important of us turning outward and showing appreciation, gratitude, gratefulness, and honor for what we see. I love reading biographies, and so you'll hear me mention heroes of the faith all the time. You'll notice I'm not usually going to honor Winston Churchill as the greatest picture of spiritual strength and spiritual faith. That's not necessarily the quality. Even as far as I know, he was a Christian. I know his position on the Word of God, and I've read his memoirs. I wouldn't look at him as a Christ-centric character as much as he would talk about God and sovereign providence and things like that, you know, classic sort of, you know, hey, we'll keep our Christianity over here. So if I'm going to model myself spiritually after a man, it's not that man, right? But you'll get a Hudson Taylor, a C.T. Studd, and you get me stirred up, and I'm like, okay, I want what they have spiritually. And so honoring, I think, is a very, very significant attribute of our soul that I want to encourage each of us as an application of this message today to deliberately make a list and to go out of our way to give thanks and to show honor, like an exercise of soul. I actually think it's what we need to be doing. Honor your father and your mother, it says in Exodus twenty twelve, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So those that have sponsored our heritage, those that have steered us to be who we are, and they don't have to be the most significant uh, player in our life. It's easier to see how our parents have so impacted our life, but even that we'll oftentimes overlook. But there are a lot of smaller players that God has brought into each of our lives that have greatly impacted where we're at today. And so I'm going to make a quick list for you in my life, and I'm going to go back to the beginning because I have a lot of people. I could make a list and I don't know if it's accurate to say a mile long, but it would be a very, very long list, which would be somewhat monotonous for all of you to just hear, right? And so I'm just going to go back in the very beginnings when I became a strong Christian, or even before I became a strong Christian, in the very development period of my life, going back 30, 35 years ago. And I picked a list. I don't remember how many are on the list, but uh, what is that? Close to 10 or so. And so... When in Barbara Ludi, does that name sound familiar? Uh, that's, that's my parents. And maybe it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways. Their life, their faith, their character made me who I am. They have always been my biggest fans. They have always stood for me, even when I had a lot of people standing against me. They have always sponsored what I've done. And so, what a blessing. Very few people have that, and I cherish that. My sister, Christina Ludi, actually her name is Kibler now, but back then it was Ludi. And my sister, who I call Chrissy, was a very, very serious Christian from a young age, and I wasn't. She prayed for me every day. And I was embarrassed by my sister as she stood for the week in her high school and she was mocked and ridiculed, and I wanted to be popular. And so I distanced myself from my sister, almost acting like I didn't have one. My sister stood by me. She loved me. She went off to the mission field, and she prayed every day for me. The first person I called when I gave my life to Jesus was my sister. And all, I mean, our conversation was pretty pathetic. And I'm like, Chrissy? She goes, Eric, I gave my life to Jesus. All she did was cry. 
That was her response. All she did was cry. Bob Barr Sr. This is a man who I still remember where I was sitting on my back porch before I went off to college. And uh, I said something. He said, so what do you want to study in college? I go, I just, I don't know. I, I was just thinking like physical therapy and doing something, you know, uh, helping like sports. I, I want to be around sports and I want to help people like exercise, get stronger. Uh, and he goes, why don't you be a doctor? I go, I'm not smart enough for that. And he leans forward. I still remember this huge impact on my life. He said, who told you that? I believe, Eric, if that if you wanted to be a doctor, you could be a great doctor. Whatever you're listening to, you need to stop listening to it. God has built you for a big purpose. Okay? Bob Barr Sr., right there. The reason there is a Bob Barr Jr. here is my roommate at college. <laughs> That's why I'm, I'm clarifying. And yet that had a big impact on my life, an entire perspective shift of saying, yeah, and I went to study medicine. Dick Anderson, who's my uncle, Uncle Dick, again, sort of like Bob Barr Sr., always aiming higher, just sort of took me under his wing in a very critical developmental season of my life and invested in me, gave me a sense of purpose. And it's sometimes those small things, it's not a specific quote with Uncle Dick, it's a whole season of my life where I felt like he was just saying, Eric, I have your back. Eric, I think you can be used in a big way in this world. Peter Trost, <laughs> whether or not these are in the right order, it's pretty close. I came home after my first semester at college, and my parents were having a 25th wedding anniversary, and I was still in sort of my cool zone in life where I hadn't yet given my life to Christ. That's going to be a couple months after this. And I was a Christian, you know, so I would have called myself a Christian, but I just didn't talk about it. It wasn't really part of my identification and I remember I was leaning up against the counter in the kitchen, just sort of looking at all these people and probably thinking I was a little better than the situation around me. And Peter Trost comes up and gets in my same position, kneels and leans against the counter all cool next to me. And he's an old, he was an older man, you know, probably 20 years older than me. And he's just sort of staring at what I'm staring at and hanging out, and I didn't know what he was doing there. And he said, so Eric... How are you doing with Jesus Christ? That was the question that I needed to be asked. But I was one of those guys that would have been tough to come up to and ask that question to. You know the cool kid, that guy? He intimidates us. And yet Peter Trost was not intimidated by Eric Ludi. Instead, he came right into my world, leaned up against the counter, and asked the question. And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I probably could be better. <laughs> well, the fact that, what, a month and a half after that, I'm giving my life radically to Jesus and remembering that question. Uh, Doug and Perry Staples, I would say advocates of my life at one of the most critical junctures. I'm newly married to Leslie, and, whew, uh, you know, you're on your own for the first time, and don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of resource. And if any of you have ever uh, heard some of those stories from the early years, uh, Doug and Perry will come up because I still remember this one time I, uh, I had a light that went out on the front of my Camry 
And I got pulled over by the Michigan policeman and he said, uh, okay, you don't have to pay anything as long as you can show a policeman within a week, or maybe it was like three days, it was a short period of time, that you fixed it. So show the receipts and show that it's fixed, have a policeman sign off on it, you won't have a fee. And it was like, you know, $150. I, I, don't, I don't have that, but I, I don't have the money to fix it either. And Doug somehow found out about this, uh, that I was in a bind. So they invited us over for dinner uh, one night, and so we were in there, and Doug snuck out. I didn't know he was doing this, and he was figuring out the parts and, and everything. And then they invited us over the next night for dinner. And the next night, he snuck out, fixed my, my headline. And I know it sounds like sort of a small thing, but as a young man, in those struggle seasons when you're trying to get your feet under you, to have someone who will actually think from your vantage point and say, this is what this man needs right now. He washed my feet, and it so impacted my life and set a pattern in place. I want to be like Doug Staples. That's what I want to be like. And every one of you around here is going, I want to be like Doug Staples. You see, Doug Staples are oftentimes not seen, but they're the ones that change the world. Brian Allison. Brian Allison, uh, in our first year of marriage, we're newly married, he has a, a business for refrigeration parts, right? And he knew my desire. I wanted to spend the first year of my marriage focused on marriage. and knew I had to make money, and, but I wanted to have this, this focus. And so he said, Eric, I'll hire you. And he built my schedule to focus on Leslie. He also was the one that oh, somewhere in that year we wrote a, a little book because we were being asked to share our love story everywhere we went. And so... We were so sick and tired of having to answer, answer the questions about our love story, so we wrote this thing down in three weeks in our spare time, and he funded the printing of it. It wasn't a published book at that time. Then a publisher's going to get that, and it's going to turn into a book, right? But he actually printed it, funded the whole thing. So he's the one that actually started our writing career, was a guy named Brian Allison, just a business owner who wanted to help the marriage of Eric and Leslie Ludi. Richard Runkles, and you'll see Janet Runkles under that, but Rich, uh, this is Leslie's parents, uh, just such a significant impact uh, spiritually at a very critical time in my life where he became sort of that seasoned veteran. I used to tremble when I was around Rich. I felt like he could see right through me, and if I had any hidden sins, so anytime I'd get together with, before I'd get together with Rich, I'd confess anything. God, please clean me out. I don't want him to see that. Uh, but he truly became one of my best friends even when I, when I was uh, falling in love with Leslie, he was the one that taught me how to win her heart. And there's multiple stories with Rich. Uh, I still remember one time when I was out uh, teaching in Michigan and I had these boxes arrive on my front porch. I mean, just three or four big boxes that were extremely heavy. They were packed with books. It was an entire library for a pastor. He started me out with a library for a pastor. That's how uh, I started out before I ever became one. He was just like, this man needs to have the stuff. And so he just underwrote it. Uh, Janet, Runkles Leslie's mom, two key moments in my life. There's many. Uh, she has had a significant impact on my life. But I still remember this one. I was in this prayer time. This is before Leslie and I were even in a relationship. And I had I'd been praying for my wife every day that God would steer me, that he would lead me in this. I just wanted to follow him because I had blown it so many times in that area of my life. 
and I really wanted to be sharpened and I wanted to do this right. And so I was in this prayer time and I had this thought that Leslie was the one, okay? But it was very awkward. She's five years younger than me and no. And so I was rebuking it as if it was from the devil. And afterwards, we're at the door and I'm ready to leave and Janet says, Eric, just a second. There was something that God spoke to you tonight and he wants you to know that's from him. <laughs> and she goes, does that make any sense? And I go, well, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll pray about it. <laughs> that's what I said. But I tell you what, that voice of clarity at such a moment where I literally could not receive it sort of cut through a fog and opened me up to something that, I mean, obviously now has so impacted my life. There's another moment when Leslie and I were about, oh, two, three years into ministry, and it was hell is what it was. I mean, it's hard to describe ministry as hell, but it was so hard. And I felt like the devil negotiated a deal, and he said, Eric, you give up this message, I'll let go of you. And that's, it was good enough that I was ready to take it. And so Leslie and I both decided we were going to step out of ministry. And we sat down. I think, Les, I think Rich and Janet thought we were going to announce that we were pregnant because we said we have an announcement. We have something to tell them. Should have thought that through a little better. And so we got together with them, and I made the announcement that we were stepping out of ministry. Why? Well, I feel like the devil's made it clear that if we will just give up this message, he'll let go of us. Key moment in my life right here. Janet looks at me, and she says, he's lying to you. He's not going to stop harassing you until he kills you, Eric. You know too much. As far as a defining moment in my life, right then I stand up with fists. I'm like, I am not stopping. And you'll, you'll notice in my life, I have been baited so many times to give up. And I will rehearse that over and over and over in my life. So, guys, we all have a list. That's just mine. And that's just the beginning of it. If I kept going throughout my life of the years in ministry and all the people that have stood by me, the staff, the team I have now, even my kids, and even more stories about my parents over the years, more stories about Leslie's parents over the years, I have loads of people in my life that I should honor. And I think for all of us, if you could go back to some of the foundation moments in your life and just as a practical outcome of this message, just take some time, whether it's a quick note, email is sort of a cheapened way compared to a face-to-face, -face, right? But, hey, at least we can do it. At least we can get some communication out there. Let's honor those that deserve the honor. Let's show respect to those that deserve the respect. And let's not allow the soot of life to cover those things over and cause us to forget those that have gone before us and washed our feet. Father, thank you. We want to honor you first and foremost for all that you've done for us. And Lord, if we're going to honor you well, we want to honor those you've worked through. Lord, show us. Remind each one of us that are present here right now and that are listening to this uh, live stream or via podcast. Lord, I pray that you would just remind us today of those that have gone before us, those that have washed our feet, those that have lifted our hands in the battle. Lord, this is unto you for your glory, honor, and praise. It's in your precious name we pray this. Amen. 
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.